everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Pedagogy. We're launching our second series with this episode and the series is on criticality, creativity and care. This episode came out of us reading Alex and Ida, who we talked to today, their article in the European Journal of International Relations, which is named Abstractions in International Relations on Mystification of Trans, Queer and Subaltern Life in Critical Knowledge Production. We thought it was a really fascinating unpacking of criticality and we wanted to try and think about how this would impact upon pedagogy as well. So we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Today we welcome to the podcast Ida and Alexander. Ida Roland Birkbatt is a fellow in political theory in the Department of International Relations at London School of Economics and Political Science. Her research engages with questions related to international political theory, non-Western agency in international relations, and histories of imperialism. She has published in the European Journal of International Relations and Millennium Journal of International Studies. And we're also with Alexander Shuffle, who's a lecturer in international politics at Queen Mary University of London. He's previously been a fellow in qualitative methodology at the London School of Economics. And Alex's research takes up critical questions regarding the intersections of sexuality, race and desire within capitalist expansion. He's published in International Studies Quarterly, the European Journal of International Relations and the International Feminist Journal of Politics. And is currently one of the editors of the journal Historical Materialism, where he convenes the Sexuality and Political Economy Network. Thank you so much for joining us today. And as you know, this season is talking about creativity, care um, and criticality. And we were really taken by your article in the European Journal of International Relations and the E-International Relations article as well. And what we were taken by really was how did you come to this kind of subject area and work together as well? It'd be great to hear about the history of where your pathway to this has come from and reflecting that, I guess, within the article as well. Yeah, thanks, Madeline, and thanks, Louise, for inviting us. We're both really thrilled to be here. Maybe we can start, I can tell a little bit about my sort of, I guess, intellectual journey that in many ways culminates with the article, and then, Alex, you can chime in. So picking up on one of the themes, criticality, that's kind of central to your season, maybe I can think about how I got to question what criticality means for me through my intellectual journey. And really how I was sort of socialized into thinking what critical research was. And when I did my undergraduate degree, this was around 2008, 2002, 2010. I think for a lot of us who started around this time, Judith Butler was such a revelation for us, right? This whole idea about how gender is not only something that you are, but it's something that you do. So sort of gender as a verb, I think for me, my mind was blown. And for me, this constituted what was the epitome of criticality at the time. So upending the gender binary, you know, that's where my kind of intellectual journey started, I think. And then when I later did my postgraduate degree in political theory at SOAS, so this would have been 2014, what really constituted criticality again then was still the tradition that Judith Butler comes out of, which is post-structuralism, right? So questions of what are the limits of language, what are the limits of knowledge, but also in the context of SOAS and my kind of education post-colonial theory, this question of the sort of epistemic power of colonial Europe, 
when Gayatri Spivak talk about, you know, can the subaltern speak, etc. So we're still in the kind of realm of post-structuralism. So around eight years later, when I started my PhD, these kind of ideas of the focus on language and focus on coloniality as this all-encompassing project really came into question. And I kind of realized how the Butlerian, the Spivakian ways of thinking, these quite like abstract modes of theorizing about language and the constant sort of deconstruction of everything had really actually taken me away from the kind of situated, historically constituted actual politics and political thinking that happens in South Asia, which was the focus of my doctoral study. And so this is where, for me, my ideas of criticality started to change. So this is where particularly Indian Marxism, but also importantly, anti-caste critique and Dalit thought was really incredibly eye-opening for me. And these perspectives argues that when important voices from the subaltern school, so again, Spivak, we can think about Spivak here, claims to critique the binaries and oppositions that structure our world, and I think here, most importantly, the West and the non-West, what ends up happening is that they actually fetishize this binary, right? They reify that binary. And on the contrary, Indian Marxism and anti-caste critique are in different ways, but still quite similarly interested in historicizing and giving nuance to what we understand as the colonial relationship. So in other words, what I in the beginning thought of criticality when I started as an undergraduate student ended up really sort of being brought into crisis through my PhD work. And I realized that criticality is specific to my situatedness, right, in time and space, and also very much what is in vogue at the time, right? Like what is in the vogue at the time of you starting university? And so what seemed sort of offhand critical, challenging binaries, epistemic power of the colonial center, etc., really kind of ended up with me challenging those foundations. Adra, I love that because that journey is sort of familiar, apart from in my undergraduate, I don't think I did a single critical wisp of anything. But then I did like a gender and IR masters and PhD afterwards. But I think it also speaks to some of the stuff that we spoke about in our previous series where we were thinking about this yeah. and in the conversation where Robbie Shilliam was talking about IR's like obsession with turning around. Like what are we turning to and what are we turning yeah. from? And I think you're speaking to that. And yeah, so Alex I guess, do you have a similar journey or does your journey look nothing like that? And how did you come to kind of engage with what it means to be critical? My journey actually uh, mirrors that, but also sounds similar to yours, Louise, because at my undergraduate, which is between 2014 and 2017, there was no critical theory anywhere to be found. So I was actually looking for a lot of the scholars that Ida mentioned, like Butler and Spivak and Foucault and who not, they weren't on any of the reading lists. So during my undergraduate, I was going off the reading list, doing a lot of my own readings, trying to teach them to myself, getting into arguments with my tutors about whether or not this is real research or real knowledge. And I was told to do my postgraduate at LSE because at the time there were a lot of critical scholars working there. And so when I did, it was, of course, a very enriching very exciting year for me because I got to study in a more sort of formal setting the things that I wanted to do at undergraduate. I took a lot of classes in gender studies, in queer theory, a lot of feminist theory, post-structuralism, everything that was, yeah, quite vogue in the time and considered critical theory. I think one of the critical insights that I took away at the time, especially from queer theory in IR, is that 
deviance and non-normativity gets ascribed to certain populations that are then named queer. But we didn't learn much about how those ideas of deviance are attached to those groups, how those categories shift over time, what broader social relations those categories reflect, and often in whose interests ideas of deviance were ascribed to certain populations. Instead, the queer scholars in IR, as I was studying queer IR in 2018, were usually bracketing the question of how and why deviance was ascribed to certain people that we call queer. That was sort of taken for granted. And queer started to just mean deviance. It often just meant deviance, deconstruction, fluidity, non-normativity, as though they were synonymous. It was therefore almost like a method. Queer almost became a method for the post-structuralists in IR. And this got to the point where queer started being thrown around in seminars and lectures to refer to anything that appeared to disrupt a binary. And this was seen as a quite trendy move. And I remember students with inclinations towards post-structuralism would use some queer theory in their essays, but in ways that would seem quite peculiar to people who are not in IR. So for example, I remember in one seminar, someone was studying the phenomenon of homegrown terrorists in France. And these quote unquote homegrown terrorists defied standard expectations about what a terrorist might look like or where terrorists might come from. And so in this seminar, we thought it was reasonable to refer to these homegrown terrorists as queer because they were defying certain binaries or normative expectations. And this was very normal. One fashionable statement that you'd hear quite a lot at the time was that X is already always queer and X could be all number of things. It was just a way of saying that something fails to conform to a certain norm or to a certain ideal or to a certain discourse. But of course, the whole point about norms is that no one ever really lives up to them. That's why they're norms or ideals. Surely we can't call everything queer that disrupts an ideal or a norm in some sort of way. So this seemed to be getting slightly out of control and I didn't really know where to go from here. All I knew starting the PhD was I wanted to do something other than use queer as a method or as a label to signify my critical status. And I wanted to differentiate myself from others who were using queer theory, even though they didn't necessarily have an interest or commitment to queer politics. And this is also the year when I met Ida, because we were both doing our PhD together at the same institution. This was also during lockdown and we lived quite close to one another so we were sort of one another's bubble and we would have these conversations about our intellectual journey over the course of lockdown and it sort of turned out that we were grappling with the same question which is how can we be critical about the label critical we were also at the same time reading a book by a professor called emma heaney in the u.s who wrote about how trans feminine people are used as allegories within critical research. And that really sparked our interest. And so we decided to do an event with her that was really enriching for us. And that then became the springboard for us to write an article in EJR about criticality. Just before we get into the article, I also think that obviously the last couple of years, the issue of trans people's lives have generally become this whole sort of flashpoint for political debate. And I think in many ways, trans studies and reading Emma Heaney's book alerted us to the real 
kind of shortcomings of queer theory, right? Because if gender nonconformity is to not be, quote unquote, a man or a woman, right? Then how can we understand trans life? How can we understand people who grow up and think of themselves as a gender, right? Who insists on, on understanding themselves as a man or a woman? Queer theory then insists on that being some sort of false consciousness or, or you know, just normative, right? It's not a critical act to be trans somehow, right? And so I think these kinds of flashpoints were really something that made us delve into trans theory in the first place and then start to think about the article that we then ended up writing, which sort of came out of these discussions. And maybe I can just quickly outline the argument of the article. So moving from kind of the bigger questions of queer theory and trans politics at this particular historical moment of lockdown, we were also thinking then more concertedly about the discipline, right? The discipline of IR. And in IR, and particularly uh, critical IR, there's this tendency to use positions of marginality to analyze phenomena in international politics that really have very little to do with these subject positions, right? So it's kind of what Alex just said. And so here we can think about scholars who are interested in using queerness or queer identity to like queer the border or use trans people as an analytic, right? Trans people as an analytic to talk about transnationalism, process of belonging, unbelonging, or also even just thinking about states as subaltern states in the kind of international state system. So basically this idea of subordinated groups becoming metaphors or rhetorical figures for academic theorizing that have very little to do with, with these people. So this was the kind of puzzle that we then started out with in lockdown. And in the article, it's kind of like a review of the literature, right, of the whole of so-called critical IR. And we look at, like I just alluded to, we look at the categories of queer, trans, and subaltern subject positions. And we argued that these have become mystified through processes of abstraction and fetishization in the current literature. And so in the second part of the article, we outline what is then to be done instead, just basically a kind of strategy of demystification and concretization. So where scholarship instead of mystifying, is attentive to how queer, trans, and subaltern are not these sort of monolithic trans-historical categories, but, you know, that they're actually situated, that they're historical, that they're socially determined. And then, you know, even if we do sort of hang a few scholars out to dry a little bit in the article, and we take a quite a critical stand to a lot of the literature in our discipline, we also didn't only want to dump on our colleagues, and just sort of like tell them what they're doing wrong. But we also wanted to showcase all the wonderful work that is being done in the discipline that does this work of demystification and concretization. So that's the crux of the argument. And then maybe there are some key terms in the article, right? So we have abstraction, we have mystification, we have concretization. And maybe it would be helpful for the rest of the conversation to just kind of lay out a little bit what those mean. I want to do that, but I was wondering at first, you asked these questions which push us as academics to think about how we understand IR and criticality in IR, right? And that's really important because, you know, we're the ones that are at the forefront of doing research and the conversation in a way. I wondered, as people who have gone through higher education 
and who are teaching within a higher education institution or have had the practice of doing so. How do you see that translating in a classroom? Like, how do you see us pushing beyond just sitting and having these conversations, which are so important, and your article is so important? How are you offering that to be translated into our teaching? I think what's interesting is that I don't think IR can be taught in quite the same way anymore today as it was in 2018. So it was really, as we were writing this article, turfism was really taking off in the UK and a lot of transphobia in the tabloids. And you could look at the tabloids and one day you'd see something that would say, trans people are taking us back to the gender norms of the 1960s. The next day it would say, trans people want to undo traditional gender. Then, you know, you'd hear things like trans people are a symptom of post-modernity. Trans people were being all sorts of things, contradictory. And it's then weird to go into the classroom and read articles where critical scholars are essentially making the same moves. It doesn't quite work in the same way. So I think we were writing this article coming out of our own masters But the younger scholars who we've spoken to, our articles resonated with them in ways that we perhaps didn't quite expect. We we perhaps expected a little bit more pushback. But a lot of the scholars who we also write critically about in the piece have come to us and said, yeah, we've heard similar things from our students as well. They're also uncomfortable with these moves. I think there's something about the social conditions in which we're teaching now that don't allow for the same sorts of theoretical and analytical moves anymore. So then the question becomes, how do we elaborate a critical theory that's adequate to the current political moment? And that's where Ira and I have found it really useful to move more towards what we're calling the concrete. So trying to meet students where they're at to address problems as they arrive within a particular context to keep things grounded and to keep things historicized right? To think historically about how certain categories come about and what they reflect, rather than trying to turn them into some sort of metaphor or into a rhetorical trick. And I think that's something that students respond to. Most definitely. And this speaks so much to a conversation with Olivia and Robbie in the last series about how do we meet our students where they are? And they did that in such a fun, beautiful way, right? Talk about K-pop and talk about Beyonce, etc. Your article does that through these three key terminologies that you offer. I wonder, can you talk us through them a little bit more? Yeah, I hope listeners forgive me if this is a bit of a boring explanation, but I think that the terms are quite key and will help us in the conversation to follow. So one category is this idea of an abstraction. So what's an abstraction? We tend to call things abstractions when they present themselves to us as though they were eternal and universal. So we say that categories appear universal because they're abstracted from their particular context or from concrete social relations. And race is a really good example of an abstraction because in the world that we currently live in, it appears as though people were differentiated into races. Now, of course, we know that there is only one human race, but race still presents itself to us as if it were a transhistorical empirical truth. This is why in the media you can get conversations about, for example, whether or not Jesus was white, even though Jesus lived long before the category of whiteness even existed. And that then points to some of the dangers of abstraction, which is that abstractions can mystify or hide the particular social relations that give rise to them. So abstractions like race and gender 
can occlude the forces that produce those normative classifications and, and differentiations in the first place. And one of the central insights of the literature that we cite in the article is that capitalist society's ability to self-mystify is at the heart of its ability to reproduce itself, to foreclose possibilities of, of thinking or imagining or doing otherwise. So the task of the critical theorist is then sometimes described accordingly as a practice of demystification. And we use this idea of the concrete to say something about how to get there, how to do demystification. Because thinking about abstractions in their concreteness really means asking what the historical and social relations are that produce them. So for example, to concretize an abstraction like race is to ask, as as many have done, how is race produced and reproduced over time and in different contexts? And that can be done at different levels. We might ask, how does colonialism produce race? Or we might ask, how does the post-80s prison industrial complex in the United States produce race? You can do this at different levels of concreteness, but our task should be to concretize abstractions. Otherwise, we risk reproducing their mystifications. So that's what we try to do in relation to categories like queer, trans, and subaltern, but can be done with all sorts of categories and is something that we try to do in our teaching as well. Something that, yeah, Robbie and Olivia do touch on when they talk about using pop culture in their lessons. That's a great way of getting the theories to come to the ground. I think what's quite important is for critical scholars to reflect on is that the reason why students respond to critical theory so well is because critical theories sort of promise to make themselves concrete. I know from teaching international relations theory, and I'm sure you all have the same experience, you go through realism and neoliberal institutionalism and and the English school, and students tend to ask, why does this matter? Why should I care about these theories? What does this have to do with anything? And then when you get to the weeks on feminism and post-colonialism, all of a sudden those questions disappear. Students are no longer asking, what does this have to do with me? Why are theories relevant to everyday life and to the real world? And that is sort of the promise of concretization, that it becomes real. And that's sort of our job, I think, too, in pedagogy as critical scholars. But I also think it's important to say that concretization is not kind of like brute empiricism Mm. either, right? So we're not saying that one should not abstract, right? That's an important point here. Abstractions are not bad. In fact, abstractions are really helpful for us to understand uh, our world and our place in it. So concretization is not kind of breaking everything into empirics, but it is a way of getting at demystification of abstraction is a way to get at the kind of composite parts of that abstraction and where that comes from and who benefits from a particular type of abstraction, et cetera, right? So it's important to remember that abstractions are really an integral part of theorizing and theorization (laughs) is good, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And we want to theorize, but we want to be careful and nuanced when we do that theorization. Yeah, Madeline and I have both taught on IR theory. Um, I continue to teach on it. I wonder as well, this has come up in conversations with other people when talking about feminism, What's also difficult in the like week by week structure is that theory is always presented as building on the theory before and then you reach like these critical theories as femi- like feminist theory or post-colonial theory that's always the last theory, right, that you do. So it's the week eight, week 10, week 12 theory <laughs> as being like, we made it to the pinnacle. 
<laughs> and, and we've arrived and I guess as well some of it is about saying like yeah it, it's a nice place to be um but actually we're not comfortable with this linear build to the point where we're all thinking about this and really what you want to do is invert that right because if you think about the method of concretization that we're talking about really what is at the base of all of these kind of theories like realism that comes to us as sort of set theory that we can just employ to understand the world if you deconstruct it right or demystify it concretize it what is at the base of that is what feminism teaches us what post-colonialism teaches us what critical race theory teaches us right so the inversion is really important here i think for understanding and historicization as well the the irony about that linear story is it presents feminism and post-colonialism and so on as a response to realism when in fact realism is a response to a lot of the radical movements of the mid-century like decolonization realism kind of emerges as a counter-revolution to sort of the era of anti-colonialism feminist theory has a much longer history than realism but it sort of is a way of provincializing those critical theories when they're presented as a simple response to realism and then it's also hard to get at their internal diversity as well. I mean, there are all sorts of feminisms and there are a lot of bad feminisms and there are colonial feminisms mm-hmm. and trans-exclusionary feminisms and then there are progressive mm-hmm. feminisms and liberal feminisms and post-structuralist feminisms and Marxist feminisms. But that gets lost completely. And that is sort of the, the concreteness, which you can't really understand without understanding how feminism has historically emerged, what it's reflected and so on. That gets lost in the way that we teach international relations. And I think if we teach them in a way that is more historically uh, situated and is more grounded, I think that story is much more intuitive to students and they stop asking, why are we just learning these abstract theories one after another? I don't understand what this has to do with anything. But I think also just coming back to Madeline, you were talking about something that Robbie had said in the previous season, which is about meeting students where they are. That sort of makes me think about like, how can we also concretize the students? <laughs> that seems a bit sort of maybe some, somehow a bit harsh, but how do we concretize the group of students that you have in the classroom, right? Like they are not sort of like this blank canvas that we're speaking to and then they absorb knowledge, obviously. They also come to the classroom with very particular experiences. They're situated in very particular social relations. And I guess, like, if we think about teaching postcolonialism, which is what I do, then, you know, it really matters. So I teach at the LSE. So, you know, most of my students are quote unquote elite students. What does that mean, actually? Right. Some of them are like elite international, some of them are like diaspora elites from post-colonial countries. Some of them are white British, right? So they come to the classroom situated in the social total in, in very particular ways. What that means is that colonialism for these students will mean vastly different things, right? And not only sort of uh, because of their family's histories or maybe lack of histories or uh, in terms of how they reflect on their background, but also who they see as the perpetrators of colonialism, who benefits from colonialism. Have they themselves maybe benefited from colonialism? Are they aware of that? You know, so in a sense, concretizing colonialism in a classroom also means sort of not assuming that we're talking about the same thing, right? 
Couldn't agree with you more, Ida. And having the lemonade, I always say, out of precarious contracts is that I've worked at so many universities with so many different cohorts of students that I have seen that you have to approach different subjects in different ways in order to meet those students where they are. And understanding of the demographics of our students is so important. Clinical, it makes it sound so clinical that actually it's so many factors that go into the students of where they are and how they think about something or how they would approach something. We also, what I think you both spoke about really beautifully was that we often forget now that our students have also been through COVID, right? And those lockdowns in that period of time, it was such a microcosm of so many what would have been seen as difficult conversations that we have, especially if we talk about it within a UK institution, there's so much resistance to talking about anything about our own past, if we're talking about kind of colonialism and maybe race today, but also just talking about difficult subjects that really have been amplified, our own positionality has been amplified through those lockdowns and through that period of time where we could kind of stop and watch the world a little bit. And I think remembering that our students were in that, but within an education system within that is really important because they weren't just in a UK education system, they were in multiple different education systems, right? So then what does that mean when we're asking them to think critically when what they were doing especially within the UK, was trying to hit a certain target to then get to a university, right? And we don't know what that looks like across the world in different education systems as well. I really was thinking when I was reading your article and thinking about kind of pedagogy and what you've just said there with this is that when we're meeting our students and we're also trying to get them to think critically in these concrete ways that you're talking about here, maybe, how do we take into account everything we've just been through? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking like your article literally came out of you having these intense conversations in an intense period of time. And we're meeting our students, whatever that means, having gone through those intense periods of time too. It just made me think when you were talking about it, that like context matters, right? Your article came out of context. We're talking about addressing these real world issues through theories and also acknowledging that our students come from different pathways and journeys. Yeah, and also that their COVID experience was so different, right? Like, again, like not assuming that all of them, you know, had the same type of lockdown experience. I remember one of my colleagues here at LSE was telling me about how when he was having like chats with students over Zoom during the lockdowns, you know, they were like in Dubai uh, by the pool, right? And sort of like having time out from everything. Yeah, I mean, last year I was at LSE and I was teaching methodology modules that anyone from across the university can enroll in. So that meant that I was teaching sociologists and gender students and social policy students and IR students and international development students all in the same classroom, which makes this particularly difficult because you have students with all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of dispositions, all sorts of orientations towards critical theory. You put them all together, that can make it tough for a teacher, but I think the example that you just gave is really good because it alerts us at least to the constraints under which we are also teaching. There are institutional constraints to what we can we can do. I what what struck me is that in the last episode with Robbie and Olivia, I think it was Robbie who, in response to one of your questions, said that decolonial and feminist epistemologies are sometimes treated as magic. 
And the use of the word magic was interesting because it points to mystification, right? It points to this idea that if we're treating some critical creative tool as a, as a magical fix or a solution to all the problems that we encounter in the classroom and that are inherent to the conditions under which we're working in the neoliberal university, we're probably fooling ourselves. So sometimes it is about thinking with students as well about what are the conditions under which we're learning? What can we achieve together? And sometimes you end up, I think, surprising them. A lot of the critical students arrive in seminars thinking that because they're critical, they will be more reflexive, they are more open to creative practices. But then it turns out that those creative critical practices are not so creative or critical. I think reflexivity is a really good example when you're teaching methodology. Students who are more critically inclined will often include positionality statements in their essays, but those are often done in a quite uncritical manner. And you notice as a teacher quite quickly that simply stating your identities in an essay doesn't mean that you're being reflexive about those identities. It doesn't mean that you're thinking about how they influence how you go about conducting research and how you analyze material and how you treat your research subjects and what conclusions you arrive at, what the political implications are of your work and so on. And it can be useful to talk to the critical students about what they think about the so-called traditional methods and whether those can also be used in creative enabling ways and vice versa. So it can be good to have different students together with different dispositions because it can help them apply criticality to their own critical identity in a way, if you're able to. But again, there are constraints. I think we place quite a lot of responsibility on teachers to be able to overcome a lot of the restrictions that are placed on us by virtue of the conditions under which we teach and that there is actually no, there is no magic in in the classroom. So the other thing that made me think about this was that I was working at a university during lockdown and I was trying to talk to them about critical theory, right? I was teaching them my art theory, it was critical theory. And the cohort of students that I was teaching was mostly a very affluent white and male and I was met with a lot of resistance towards that. Now, having worked during lockdown at a different university with a different cohort of students who were experiencing lockdown in a very intense way because of the the place they were in London, when I was talking about critical theory, there was much more of an engagement with it. Like you said, they could see themselves in it in that sense as well. But that was still during that period of time. And I just think that lockdown was a kind of a microcosm for understanding that a little bit more. And I wondered, have you experienced that? Have you experienced different engagements with criticality? And do you feel that, you know, the paradigm that you offer here, how would that fit within that? It's back and I think into the pleasingly moved into the territory of thinking about care as well. So that's, you know, back into our themes, but how can you do this with care right or an awareness of the students that you're in the room with in the way that we've spoken about other categories before i think that care in a similar way the concept of care is an abstraction that needs to be demystified right i mean i think that if we have a conversation about quote-unquote care that isn't attentive to like its underlying presuppositions and power dynamics then we're reproducing that kind of method of fetishization that we're critical of in the piece, right? And I think care is really, again, if we want to think concretely about this, I think in this particular historical moment in UK higher education, care is really interesting and quite critical. 
And so I've noticed this, especially through my PhD research teaching, but also in union spaces and strike spaces. Uh, I think I've noticed that this concept of care has been really central, has become more and more central to what it means to be a progressive academic uh, and particularly like a kind of lefty academic in this country, which I think is partially a kind of consequence of austerity politics and the kind of retrenchment of the of the state and welfare provisions and really like the kind of callousness of Tory rule, right, that we're faced with on a daily basis. And I think that that means that care has like come into our lives in this way that like allows us to position ourselves as the opposite of everything that we're sort of against, right? So again, the callousness of, of Tory austerity we then have to kind of like become the people who care, right? And what that looks like, I think, for example, the context of the strikes, I don't know if you've noticed how a lot of the kind of uh, discourse around the strikes is about how we as teachers, we as lecturers, we are the ones who care about the students, but the university management doesn't, right? And I'm quite skeptical of that language, because on, on a kind of personal level, I'm sort of like, I'm not sure how much I want to care about the students. <laughs> what I mean by that is I think this is a kind of mission creep where the new liberalization of the university puts more and more caring responsibilities onto us, both because public services are being cut, but also because management doesn't want to deal with the students, right? So one thing is that management is like pushing this on us, but we are like seemingly willingly embracing that language ourselves by saying we are the ones who care about students. And in this context, professionalism and having a professional relationship to the student almost becomes like a bad thing. This has been my kind of personal experience. So I'm sort of all about professionalism. I love professionalism. <laughs> what I mean by that is like, I think that a professional relationship with students that doesn't infringe on either of our personal boundaries is there to protect both me and the student, right? So it's there to protect me from overworking and it's there to protect the students from all kinds of like abuse of power because it is an asymmetrical relation of power. But I think the language of care or this idea of we are the ones who care about the students sort of like obfuscates that, right? I, th I think that's such an, an interesting observation and like important observation because it's labor, right? It's like additional labor for, for us, right? Yeah. And who does that labor? We all know who do that labor. That is women and it is particularly women of color. So I think in these situations, we have to sort of think about like, who are the people who gets to ask for care and who are the people who give that care, right? And having a critical relationship to that, I think is really is really important. I think to put what Ida was saying into the language of our article of demystification, care, we're not against care. We're against a, care under certain conditions, right? So thinking about care is precisely what a lot of the socialist feminists were doing who we cite in the piece. Actually, we cite this line from the Marxist feminist campaign, Wages for Housework from the 1970s, which was founded by Silvia Federici and Selma James and Maria Della Costa and, and some others. And the, that line goes, they call it love, we call it labor. And it's a great example of demystification because it points out how abstractions like care or like love can often hide or mystify 
quite extractive or exploitative social practices. So in this case, they're referring to how the unpaid reproductive labor of housewives in the home is naturalized or mystified as somehow an expression of women's natural proclivities for care and for nurturing and and motherhood and whatnot. So so we, we include this line because it's a way of showing that if we treat certain abstractions like care as unalloyed goods, as inherently good, regardless of their context, then we lose sight of who is performing that care for whom, in whose interests, in what conditions, and so on. And if we think concretely about care, it turns out that care can be quite intimately entangled with forms of exploitation and sometimes even violence. What does that mean for us as teachers? It means that sometimes it can be imperative to withdraw care. And we can think of strikes as a way of withdrawing certain types of care under certain conditions. Or we can think of strikes as a tool of demystification, right? As a tool to make visible the conditions under which care is performed, what system it reproduces, and to make us think about what other models of care would look like, what a caring university would look like under different conditions. And I I know I've banged on about this probably enough, but I do think that COVID also made that line really blurry of like what our role is as academics uh, in relation to our students. And because obviously we were more caring as in like giving care, as it were, much more then. Um, But we're not in the same period of time now. And I think that there are ways in which that has been taken advantage of as well with that. And I think that opposing view of if we are in opposition of it, therefore we are the owners of this idea of care, when actually it's just been, care has been sapped out of every kind of institution across this country right now, right? And I guess, though, in a classroom, that's very different, right? Like, yes, we're talking more broadly about our roles and our roles of care my role isn't to care for my students in the way in which like I'm not a counselor right that's not my role I'm not pastoral care here but when I'm in my classroom and I'm asking them to think critically and engage with emotive topics how do I do that with care I don't know what you think to the question of how we get students to handle the material with care that's one that I think I struggle with a lot, partly because I wasn't socialized to treat the texts with care. The way that I was taught to approach material was always with an eye towards coming up with something different, coming up with something original and something better, even when I didn't understand the text fully in the first place. And not to treat texts as if they were speaking to me with a sense of urgency. It took quite a long time to get around to reading scholars, academics, sometimes not academics if it was written, you know, before the 70s or 80s, as writing texts that were not just there to be taken apart and debunked or critiqued or replaced with something new, but making mm-hmm. a demand on us of how to act, how to think about the world. So for example, the the Wages of Housework campaign, you can read those texts as just a feminist statement or you can read those texts as living and breathing text that says something about your own life and how to act in the moment, which is a very different way of reading a text, allowing it to impress upon you in a different way. But then I think we also think about care in the classroom as being somehow, or at least I in some ways think of it as being the opposite of authority in the classroom, right? So there's also this kind of like, 
difficult balance where, and I, I struggle with this myself, that on the one hand, I want to exude authority and like, you know, I am in control of the classroom. <laughs> this is not only like ideology, this is also like an affective thing, right? Like, because most of us are nervous when we go into the classroom, right? There's a lot on, on the line. And so in a, in a way you want to sit there and inhabit the space, right? And then on the other hand, you also want to exert care. And what that means is to, you know, like allow the students to say what they mean and say what they feel and create a classroom that works for everyone. And then that gets really complicated because it sort of clashes your own emotional state almost in, in that. Uh, I think you have to be a really, really confident educator to not have that part of you that says, I need to control this room, you know? There's so much that you guys are saying that's making me be like, oh, ding, ding, ding. So I think it's really great for us to start this series with your invitation to reflect crit critically about care and other concepts that we would use. Yeah. And then just from really personal experience, I'm feminist, right? And I will position myself with a feminist pedagogy and with the intention of care as mattering. And then exactly that about having no authority because then also I'm a young woman. I don't really need to very, try very hard to enter into a classroom of them to see me as an equal. Okay, like to, to put it like that. But I don't want them to not think of me as an equal. It matters. <laughs> and, and, and I want to meet yeah. them as people. I want to meet them as humans and as, pe and as people. And, and try and navigate that, I think, is difficult. And it's really nice to have these conversations and have you guys speak about your experience of that or to have space made to think about that more carefully. Because there probably isn't the right way of doing it, our right way of doing it. But it's really nice to hear you guys to kind of think about that. And I think I've been pushed probably to think about that a bit harder. And I think that, again, it's like a method of concretization for me in that situation will mean that I both think about the fact that I'm a woman, right? And in, in similar ways to what you were just describing, but also thinking about myself as white in that space, right? And like, there is so many kind of like differing power differentials that is going on in that moment, which is really complicated and needs to be all accounted for in a sense. I was going to say, so Ida and I had the same PhD supervisor, Kimberly Hutchings, and she was really helpful for me in unlearning some of the ways that I was treating theorists and scholars in an uncaring and uncareful way. I remember I showed up having been socialized in Oxford and LSE types of writing and learning. I showed up as an early PhD student and I wanted to just take down 90s queer theory. I didn't like any of it. I thought it was naive. And, you know, I had all these ideas of what was wrong with it. And Kim stopped me and told me to ask first, well, what were these people responding to? What were the questions that were, they were grappling with? Why were these theories important to them at the time? Try to get a sense of where they were, why they were writing and what they were getting at. And that was a more caring and careful way to deal with the theory. It doesn't mean that you can't then disagree with it, but at least show it the respect it deserves, even if that means rejecting it outright at the end. And that was something that I learned over the course of the PhD, and I try to instill in students as well. And that is something you could describe as treating theories concretely within their historical context in a grounded way. Like you said, it's a great pedagogical practice that Kim offered you there, like in our classrooms as well, if we're thinking about how are our students responding to a text? Well, actually, if we understand the context in which they're coming from, then we understand 
why they're reacting or, or have a relationship with the text in the way that they are as well, especially with such a restricted kind of higher education system, say in the UK, for example. Yeah, or I would know that as feminist care, right? I would know that as being a, a feminist reading of a text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like I always recommend this mm-hmm. to everyone. It's a really good article, but I can never remember the author, but I can look it up. Maybe she's having a bad hair day that talks about all the ways you can be forgiving when you read an article mm. and like being aware of that academic gesture of like everything everyone else said was awful. There's this huge problem in it. And I am the only one capable of saving <laughs> you all from this. Right. Mm. But that, again, then speaks back to stuff that you guys were talking about at the beginning about seeing knowledge as building or the way that you start to use these abstractions to do things or it makes me think about for students when you say you want them to be critical what they immediately take that to mean right like you can be critical and love something but it's necessarily to be critical is to to tear it to pieces I just think it's really nice to spend some time with that gesture that you said we ought to do of making things more concrete right so even your argument that's about the way that we operate in critical practice can then make a difference to what it means for me when I walk into a classroom in a really concrete way. The conversations that I should and mm. should have and things. And I think there's something nice about that. I was going to say that because this journey started with then I engaging with trans theory and trans feminism, we continue to be inspired by the incredible writings of trans feminist and black trans feminist writers. One of whom is Jules Jill Peterson, Both Ida and I do quite macro historical work and Jules does as well. She has a book, Theories of the Transgender Child, Histories of the Transgender, Histories of the Transgender Child, Child, which we were both really inspired by because it does this so well. It does a long durée history of gender, the abstraction gender, looks at how it's entangled with various formations from imperialist expansion to capitalism to medicalization and so on. We've actually invited her to London to do a talk with us in February, which will be, I think, a nice continuation of the project thus far. But yeah, shout out definitely to a lot of the new trans feminist literatures that are really grounded and materialist in in this way that we've been discussing. We're coming up to our kind of closing now, I guess. We've been chatting for a while I'm really taken by how an article which I gain so much from as an academic in myself and reflecting on how I engage with criticality can actually also speak so profoundly to pedagogical practices, but for our students as well. And I'm really grateful for you writing it both as an article for the European Journal of International Relations, but also for E International Relations as well, because I guess that's such a great way of it connecting to students as well for them. So thank you so much for both joining us. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And I implore everyone to go and read your articles as soon as possible. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was a real pleasure. We hope you enjoyed that podcast episode as much as we did. It was really great to talk to Alex and Ida. We'll put in the show notes the article as well. Yeah, I thought it was a really good way to kick off the series, asking us to think a bit more deeply about what it means to be critical. And I saw nice connections with the last series and kind of decolonial approaches. In our next episode, we're going to focus more on the idea of creativity while still keeping the idea of being critical and caring in mind. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, bye.